What is up guys? This is All The Smoke on Strength and Physique with your hosts Adam and Chris, where we provide you with evidence-based information, community support, and recognition to all who are bettering themselves with fitness. Welcome back to our four, five, six, eight listeners. However, we got Chris, but we got a really special guest here, Dr. Jacob Harden, man, one of the OGs of the Instagram world. And I'm kind of shocked that we actually got you. So, man, I appreciate your time. Um, And for our ignorant four to eight listeners that have no idea who you are, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself, please? Yeah, well, thanks for having me on, guys. Um, Yes, my name is Jacob Harden. I am a Cairo um, out of Orlando, Florida. I own and operate Orlando Sports Rehab. Um, Definitely have a very active care, exercise-based approach. Um, And um, yeah, it's been... I get, kind of got known for the Instagram thing, the putting up some self-care rehab progression type of content. Um, but yeah, I've been in practice now for six years. Uh, it's been uh, since I owned my own practice from day one. And um, I've definitely kind of fallen into the sports kind of active care, working with active populations. Gotcha. Yeah. So um, I know we were talking a little bit before, you know, we hit the record button, um, but what made you um, go the, the chiropractic route. Um, I know a lot of people probably don't see you as a chiro that follow you on Instagram, uh, but you know, the typical stigma of chiro is like, let me go in, let me get popped, let me get manipulated. Um, and I'll feel really, really good, but Hey, I'm going to have to come see you in a week, but your approach is different. So to say for a typical chiro. So why still go that chiro route? Well, one I've, <laughs> for me, chiro was like, just, right situation at the right time in all honesty i found i moved to florida in 2010 or no 2011 and i was uh actually kind of like in limbo and trying to figure out what i wanted to do for the rest of my life and figure i kind of graduated from um, university of texas with my bachelor's and i'd always kind of thought about i was going to go somewhere along the medical route and just needed a break from schooling after a while. So I um, was kind of in this kind of limbo point. And when I moved to Florida, it ended up being that the chiropractic school that I went to, Palmer, was 30 minutes from my house. So um, I the it's a funny story. I was like looking for a gym that had a good, that had a squat rack because when I moved out here to this area, there was not one around me. And so I got recommended to go out to the YMCA out uh, in Port Orange, which is where the school is and ends up like the school is right next to that gym. So I was just driving by it every day. Mm-hmm. I was that guy that walked into chiropractic school on day one. And I, I've never been in a chiro's office in my life. I've never been adjusted, never been in an office, never shadowed anybody. Um, but I knew I'd have an opportunity to work with people that were active and, you know, doing the things that I like to do. And so whenever I took the tour of the school and kind of heard what it was all about, um, those were kind of the questions that were asking. It was like, Hey, you know, I kind of want to work, be able to work with, you know, athletes, but also people that want to be able to keep training and working out and stuff like that. And I saw that as kind of my opportunity to do that, uh, through kind of researching what the scope of practice was. Um, I could have gone physical therapy, um, really could have, uh, but you know, honestly, like Cairo for me was an, I saw it as a way to get a scope of practice. Um, and 
then I'm from there, like make, make of it, whatever you, whatever I wanted to make of it. There's definitely been some uphill battles with that, with public perception and stuff, as you said, like people, you know, do know Cairo as primarily, you know, getting popped and, you know, the adjustment and all that, but there's a lot more to it. And I think that over time and being in practice, the way I've marketed myself, people now know me for something a little different. And so now I actually have people who seek me out, not for those things, but rather for an active approach. Um, and so I, it's, it's become less about, you know, me as the Cairo and more as, you know, me as just a practitioner who can help people get back to where they want to go. And, you know, I think that that's usually the advice that I give most people, which is, you know, seek out some, seek out the person who's going to help you, not necessarily the profession. So I, I really like the approach that you take too. And did you, was Orlando Sports Rehab, was that something that you started up or is that something you took over as a director role or? No, that's something I started. So cool. So when you initially started that, oh, were you planning on going to uh, take this online approach? Uh, from what I see, it's a, it's, it's a very big online business. Uh, you guide people. Uh, and you mentioned you just got off a call before this call. Do you have a lot of online patients? Yeah. So I got more into telehealth due to COVID. Um, mm -hmm. we, we shut the clinic down in March last year and, you know, I still had to pay rent on the building. So, um, I, and there's so this kind of goes into how I actually run the business in general and how I view patient care in, uh, as an overall standpoint, which is, I look at patient care as more so me as a, I'm just there as guiding you along, helping you get back to whatever you want to do. So I only want to be as involved as you want me to be involved. I don't view it as, okay, you have to come in this many times per week or else you're not going to get better. I just don't think that's the case because my ultimate goal is to get you to be able to, you know, manage things um, or at least be able to carry on with your life as you want to. So from the get-go, I set up a, from the get-go with um, OSR, we had set up kind of multiple tiers of care that someone can get with us in that you would come in for your consultation and we'd figure out kind of what it is we wanted to be able to do with you. But from there, we left it open to the patient to decide kind of what kind of care they wanted, whether that was we can write you an exercise program or progression, and then you can work through it with our kind of criteria that we set for how to manage symptoms. You know, you can also come into the office and do exercises with us as well. If you, you know, aren't confident that you're going to be able to do them the way that, you know, correctly, or you're not confident in your ability to manage symptoms and know when to push or when to pull back. And we let people kind of have that option. That transferred very well over to an online setting as well because we have i haven't built out the system as like you have to be with me all the time it's very you know um self-directed so that works pretty well and so nowadays yeah i would say i have 50 percent of my clients are probably online um there was a point last year it was probably about 90 percent, but that was just because no one was really coming into in-person visits for a while and I think that's a, 
Go ahead, Adam. All that, did you have any struggles then with COVID? Because again, it seems like you already had that that client-centered relationship where it's like, hey, like I don't want you to depend on me. I'd rather you have that autonomy and come see me or come reach out to me whenever you need to. So were there any struggles uh, with COVID or was there any struggles kind to relay that to any patients? Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's always, I think you know, everybody struggled with COVID. Um, we, I mean, we had just opened up our new office in September of like of 2019. So we were still kind of building that patient base out um, in that location. And so we were, you know, the online work was, it's, you know, it's still not something that everyone's totally used to. Um, and it wasn't even something I was used to because I wasn't doing a whole lot of it prior to this. Um, it kind of forced my hand to come into it. But, you know, whenever we were doing a lot of follow-ups via online, but we were never doing like initial consultations. And I think that's probably where maybe there was some hesitancy from people, which is like, well, how are you going to, you know, figure out what we need to do just by talking to me and watching me through a computer screen? You know, you're not going to be hands-on. You're not going to be like feeling things and everything. Um, and so kind of relaying that the biggest factors that we need to figure out are like, what are, what are the activities that are provocative for you and where are you struggling and how do we scale those things? That's what we need to be focused on. Once we kind of got that message across, people were more like, okay, I think we can do kind of an initial, even through a telehealth platform. Um, and then we, and the, our follow-ups have been online for a long time, just because so many of our follow-ups ended up being Q and A sessions that I started telling people, hey, I have an hour drive to my office. I, if you don't wanna come in, I don't need to come in either. <laughs> you know, we, we can do that just right here um, if you have a bunch of questions. And I think that's sort of the best approach. Um, I get that a lot of, so I'll give you my experience with Cairo. Growing up, I had some back issues. I actually had I didn't get it diagnosed or anything, but I had some excruciating pain that felt like a knife was getting stabbed into my back. When I was younger, I couldn't walk, I couldn't move, I couldn't bend because of the pain. And I went to see a chiropractor and that was the typical treatment was he, it was an older chiro, but his approach was you need to start seeing me weekly in order to have this issue fixed. And it wasn't really that in depth. He didn't see me do any movements. He didn't, he just, I came in, he adjusted me and that was that. Um, so my first question to that is what benefits come from that adjustment itself? Well, it can lead to some temporary pain relief uh, for some people. Um, and if that's something that you find is helpful for you, then wonderful, right? Now we know that it's probably, it's not really like realigning anything. Um, the effects of it for uh, probably only last about 24 hours. And the, um, the other thing with it is, uh, what was, I forget what I was gonna say there. Um, but we know that we know that it can be helpful, right? but it's a temporary pain relief standpoint. Okay, so if we establish that, 
the other thing I was gonna say was um, it's not specific. So again, we're probably not like realigning a single bone. Now, I also don't think it's like prophylactic. We don't have anything that we don't have any um, evidence that I know of to say like not getting adjusted will you know lead to you know lead to a worse outcome. So you know if it's going to be a kind of a symptom modification standpoint, which it might be, then wonderful. But how then do you prescribe it to someone? Because if it's a symptom modification, then I, I view it as if your symptoms get to a point that you can't handle them and you feel like you need some assistance with that, hey, we have, we have found something that is useful for you to bring those symptoms back down. However, I don't think that I need to be telling you, you need to come in three times a week or your pain's going to go back up, Right. Um, and that, that's, I guess that's how, kind of just the difference in kind of how I view the adjustment versus maybe how traditional care views it. Yeah. And I think that's a really good way to view it because later on down my fitness journey, uh, I finally found a Cairo that actually started having me do some like windmills with my arms, figuring out what was wrong. Cause then I started having shoulder issues and long story short, it was just a lack of educated programming that I was doing. I never had a coach myself. So I was missing out on a lot of movements that were very important, but that was the exact same approach you take. And I really enjoy that personally is because the person looked at how I ended up moving and made corrections based off of that. And my plan of care went a lot smoother. Um, so I see where you're coming with. And I had another question, but I completely forgot where it was uh, I'll start going. So, uh, Dr. Harden, you, you kind of mentioned, right? Um, pain in it, as a whole, right? There's like these little things that we can kind of do to maybe, you know, kind of guide that individual into, you know, buying in that educational wise. Um, but what, if, what do you do? If I'm probably, you don't have to deal with that now, but what were you doing when somebody, again, you're that Cairo, they're coming to see you for that adjustment, like, you know, it's only going to be temporary. So what do you kind of do to feed them to like an exercise prescription? Like how are you trying to navigate through that pain uh, aspect for individuals? Yeah, like I said, I don't deal with that as much these days because most people are coming to me for more of an active approach. Uh, but a couple things I've done in the past, I guess I can kind of uh, shed some light on. One is I would try to always do an active active care first, which um, my thought process has been, okay, this adjustment or manual therapy, whatever you wanna do is going to temporarily desensitize the system, right? So then I'm going to go and I'm going to do some exercises with you. And that often gets viewed as like, we're opening up a window of opportunity for someone to move. And that that's valid. That might be that very might, uh, very well might work. My thought process has always been, if I'm going to prescribe exercises to you to do at home, I want to prescribe those in a manner in, that is most similar to how you will be at home which is in a non-desensitized state. 
So I don't want to go and do a bunch of stuff to artificially bring symptoms down and then go and find a, an exercise prescription that fits on top of that. Because at that point, that exercise prescription may not fit your non-desensitized state. And if you're not coming in all the time to get that desensitization from me, then I don't know that that exercise prescription is appropriate. And so I want to do exercise first. I want to figure out in your natural state, what is, you know, the movement tolerance, what's your load tolerance, et cetera, et cetera. What we, and I know kind of in the back of my head, I get somebody moving and loading and kind of de-threatening their situation and talking to them and educating them, et cetera. There's a good chance by the end of that session, we might not even need to do the extra stuff, but I always offer it at the end anyway. It's like, all right, look, we're going to do this stuff first. And then if you still, Hey, you still want an adjustment? Hey, do you still want whatever, whatever? Um, we can do that. We, I found more often than not, people were like, actually, I think, I think I'm okay. Um, but we, I really tried to make sure that I was framing it as the care is what you do at home, what you do out of here. Um, and not even just exercise, but the little adjustments that we make to your day-to-day -day life, right? Like how you, you know, um, if you're finding that you're having trouble taking the stairs, like we're going to be figuring out how you can take the stairs a little bit easier. You know, it's not an exercise. It's just little, little things. That is what matters the most. This stuff over here is adjunct if necessary, or not even if necessary, but if you feel it's needed. Gotcha. So, so I know one thing that are still to this day, um, and I like I give a lot of credit to you, Teddy, um, even the prehab guys that you guys had, you know, a library of, you know, um, prehab rehab or IG rehab exercises. Um, what what was the good thing about that? And also, what do you find the bad side, the negative side of, you know, posting all this this uh, free content or this free um, prehab rehab exercises uh, for people that just kind of follow you and thinking, hey, if I have low back pain, if I do this, I should be fine instead of maybe addressing a lot of other situations that you were talking about. Well, good side. Let's start with the good. Um, there is a large, uh, large proportion of the population, um, or at least a subset of the population that has a fairly high self-efficacy when it comes to exercise, they can manage things on their own. They would prefer to manage things on their own. Um, in my experience, that ten it tends to be a lot of younger people like us who I got this thing. I, I feel that when I exercise, I need to figure out how to work around that because I want to keep exercising. Um, and they may not want to go into the system and, you know, be like, I don't, I tell my patients, I don't think you need to be coming in here and doing your exercises with me and paying me to count your reps. You know, um, if you're coming in here to do exercise with me, let's do it because like you need help with guidance on technique or, you know, figuring out symptoms or stuff like that. But there is that subset of the population that they feel confident in their ability to do it. They just kind of don't know what to do. And so putting some ideas out there as, and this has kind of always been the, at the heart of my content and what I try and do, which is not necessarily go with like the five best exercises for back pain, but rather 
here is a movement that hurts. Here are some scaled variations of that that might be good entry points for you. So that leads me into the bad side of things. It as it got more popular, it kind of turned into here's the five best exercises for back pain. Um, and then I get, a, I get a lot of messages around, I have knee pain, what exercises should I do? I have back pain, what are the best exercises that I should do? What do I need to do to make the pain go away? Um, and I think that is kind of a product of people seeing it as here are exercises for back pain. And I, I take some of the blame for that because I'm putting content out there too. Um, so I'm not like standing on my pedestal saying, look at all you doing it wrong. I think it's a very tricky situation to get that message across to people, which um, is we, you know, it's not just here's exercises for back pain, but rather here are exercises that might work well for somebody who's dealing with back pain. Um, the target of the exercises may, is not actually to make the pain go away, but rather to keep you moving through the pain. Um, and so it, it's hard to get the message across um, fully in a short format, kind of short attention span medium like IG is. And I think that's a really good approach because I see that all the time and I'm trying to figure out how to put content out. And in your case, you're dealing in my opinion, with a lot more serious conditions than what I'm going to be dealing with because I'm just, my main focus is physique building. So, okay, if someone's physique, if someone's looking to improve their physique, I can tell them, okay, what's the best ways to get protein in uh, or what's some easy ways to add protein in your habit. But I think that's just a whole, that's a whole different spectrum of care when you get involved with someone's knee pain and I could totally swear, see where that bad side is, but how do you handle chiros that are still doing things maybe with a not, not uh, movement is health approach where they're still stuck in their old ways where they'd rather just see someone several times a week. Do you still have uh is that still a thing? I haven't seen a Cairo uh, in a few years now, but I'm assuming they're still out there. Uh, where, where are some controversies you see within your uh, career within professionals? Yeah, I mean, there's, I would say it's still the majority of the population. The majority of the profession is still very much centered around adjustments. Okay. Um, it is kind of the identity of the profession. And so a lot of people within the profession kind of view it as their identity too. And there, there are so many different factions of the chiropractic so, uh, profession. That so with that established, how do you, how would you like to see the, uh, the outsider's view of chiros in the future? Where would you like to see the direction go? I would like to see us start to view the adjustment as any other therapy in the toolbox and not put it on a pedestal. Um, I would like to see us view it. Uh, it, I don't want it to be our identity. I don't even want it to be a part of our identity. I just want it to be a therapy that holds no weight greater than any other therapy or no weight greater than it should. 
Um, that's really what I would like to see. I just like to see people making decisions for what was best for somebody based on what's in front of them to where just because you're at a Cairo office doesn't mean you're getting adjusted. Um, you, if the adjustment's not warranted, then you're not getting adjusted. Um, the same way, you know, we, Cairo, physio, physical therapy, all that, you know, they have our manipulation, the manual therapy, the stem, the heat, all of it, you know, and there's reasoning behind these things as to why they should be done. And there's a ton of great Cairos out there that have great reasoning. And, you know, they adjust when they, whenever it's warranted. And then there's some who all they, like every single person is going to get an adjustment because I'm a Cairo and that's what you do. You came to a Cairo office, you're getting adjusted. It doesn't matter what the complaint is. And it's like, well, if every, if you're doing, if it's happening for everyone, is there really reasoning behind it as to why it's being done? Um, and so, yeah, that's what I'd like to see. Um, I would, I would love to see it, the whole profession become much more centered around, Hey, here's where you are struggling in your, you know, day-to-day life. And our care is centered around returning you back to your valued activities and, you know, pass more, less passive therapies, um, in that altogether. But personally, I just view these things as um, there are therapies that can be offered and there are certain things that I choose to offer and there are certain things I choose not to offer. And if somebody is seeking, if somebody wants to go get adjusted, I will happily tell them to, they should probably go see the guy down the street who does it 30 times a day because he's just going to be better at that. Um, but if you want somebody who's going to, you know, lay out a bomb exercise plan for you, Hey, come over here. We're happy to help you with that. Now, this is probably a dumb question for me. I've never been to a Cairo. I've been to plenty of physical therapists. Um, and I remember back then, my thing is if I'm going to physical therapy, shoot, I'm about to get a massage. Like that's supposed to feel really good. But what is it with the adjustments? Like, what is it with the spinal cracking? Cause you still see it on all sorts of social medias. Like you hear a, hey, make sure you have this volume and you hear and crack and like, Oh, I feel like a totally new person. Or you see these extreme cases where the guy comes in and he's like all crooked and he walks in and he snapped 10 different times and he's good as new and he feels no pain. So what, like, what is it about the adjustments that makes it feel so good or makes it feel so valuable to individuals? Um, so there's a concept called neurophysiological effects, which is fancy way of saying stimulating things in the nervous system, which lead to physiological effects. Um, so there can be muscle relaxation that happens. You're stimulating a ton of sensory information into the nervous system. Uh, you, you know, we have a endogenous like opioid system. So pain control systems within our bodies that can may get stimulated whenever you, whenever you do that. But that's similar as, Hey, you bumped your shin on the coffee table, you rub it, it feels better. And so that, that's what we call a neurophysiological effect. When you get a massage, it's a neurophysiological effect. You provide some sort of sense, you provide some sort of input to the system 
and it leads to some sort of relaxation, change in sensation that you have. Um, adjustment's one way to go about that. And different people respond to different things. Um, some people like nice, relaxing massage. Some people like love deep tissue. Hey, I want you to dig your elbow into me type of massage. And so, and you know, sometimes it's what you've been conditioned to. Somebody who's been conditioned to like, maybe has more athletic background and they're like, no, I want deep tissue. I need it. The more pain you cause me, the more this is going to feel good in the end. They might think of it as um, they view that pain as therapeutic. And so the contextual effect of that is greater to them. They actually get a greater effect out of that. And you, you give them a nice, like light relaxing massage. They might, you know, not get anything from that. Like, well, that didn't do anything, but then, you know, the next person walks in and they're like, Oh, I have a low pain tolerance. And you dig into that person. They're like, Oh, you made me feel so much worse. You know, they need a re they wanted that relaxation and somebody else might not want any of that. And they might deal well with spinal manipulation. And so some people, you know, get a lot of effect out of that too, but yeah, that's pretty much, pretty much it. Gotcha. So now I guess to, to bring you back on to, you know, the Instagram platform. So obviously that we talked about, you were on there a little hiatus. We missed you. Um, but hopefully, you know, you'll come back. So with all those negatives, and I think there's a lot more, you know, practitioners out there that are prescribing, Hey, these are the five or the three, or this is the best exercise to do. What are you going to do when, if, and ever you do come back to kind of portray that message and make Instagram rehab or prehab better? Well, I will be back. That's for sure. I will do it. Um, well, one, I want to put a little more focus into some of the non-exercise concepts that I feel need to be discussed, which is, um, one, I'm just, I'm real, like my real passion is in the programming side of things and the decision-making that goes into how you program and progress these things. Uh, that's why I've always done progressions. Uh, but I want to get that point across. So I also really want to get across like how you respond and the impact that pain has on your life is as important as, you know, the exercises we're giving might probably even more important that we address those things. So um, making more content that surrounds some of those things, some more conceptual things um, and, you know, with the exercise videos, but kind of trying to tie in, I guess, how it all fits together and not just being an exercise library. Gotcha. So why don't we go ahead, if, if you don't mind, go into that aspect of, you know, the programming regression and progression. Sure. I think that's something that's really valuable because um, too many doctors and too many clients of mine say, um, yeah, my coach said, since my knees hurt, I can't squat or I'm not supposed to squat. Mm -hmm. um, and we all know that, right. We're sitting down, we're kind of in a squat position right now, or um, yeah, I, I, since I can't over or bench is terrible. So how are you trying to regress or progress any type of specific movement or, how are you trying to relay a certain target threshold to your clients? Sure. Um, one, we got to start. We have to start with trying to identify: is this something that we feel does warrant removing this movement temporarily, or is it something that doesn't warrant that? And so, I mean, my big kind of criteria there is like: hey, if, are we looking at some sort of major trauma? where we're thinking about there's and you're in like your first couple days and maybe this is like tissue healing we don't want to be loading this too much like 
more protection, right? Or are we dealing with some more like non-specific anterior knee pain? And you ramped, you've ramped up the intensity over the past six weeks and you've been feeling pretty beat up, but you kind of started to push through it anyway, because you were on that verge of that PR you knew was coming and you've been really having that goal in the back of your mind for a while. And so you kind of like sucked it up through it. Um, and now your knee's kind of hurting, but you got the PR and you're super stoked about that. Those are two different situations, right? Um, and so we need to recognize that and realize that well, pain doesn't always mean something's broken, torn, et cetera, et cetera, that you have to totally lay off of, protect it, put it in a sling, put it in a brace, whatever. More often than not, it's the latter. It is pain that is not a reflection of something that's so damaged that you can't move it or use it. So then it becomes, all right, well, how much, how much can we do? And whenever, like, I think the problem that we run into and um, like you mentioned, okay, I have knee pain. So my doc told me I can't squat. Well, what is it about a squat as a movement that is so wrong? And it's this morality that gets labeled onto movements. Like the movement is wrong. Well, no movement is just positioned through space like that. Like that's all it is. So I look at the movement as this is how we distribute load to tissue. It's a vector for load. And if we are, if you go and you sit in a squat position, but you're on a 12 inch box, right? Your body weight is supported. It's still a squat, but it's no real load because the box is supporting the load right? The second you remove the box, there's more load. The second you add a bar, there's more load and so on and so forth. And we start to kind of view it that way. Well, then we can kind of use the same reasoning as to say like, well, why would you squat 100 pounds or instead of 200 pounds, you know? And rather than looking at it as like, oh, you can't squat. Well, why can't the squat is just a movement. Is there something about the movement that's intolerable or is there some, or is the movement fine, but there's some sort of level of load within that movement that's intolerable. And that's kind of the first thing I'm looking for. So I try and stay as close to someone's normal as possible. If you are a power lifter and you do, you know, low bar squatting for sets of six, then like, that's where I kind of, I would love to stay in that area if possible. Um, now I'm going to, sorry, is that, is that for you to try to stay as specific to that movement as possible because he is a power lifter or is that from that buying perspective, like, okay, I want to meet you where you're at. I don't want you to hear that stigma of, okay, we can't squat and go ahead and air squat. What, what is, why are you, I guess, taking that approach? Potentially both. Um, there's a lot, there's lots of reasons why I would do that. Um, so let's go through a few of them. One let's say that the low bar squat is our movement of choice here. It is causing you pain and that's where your pain has developed. If the low bar squat is at a certain load level is causing you pain, we know it's touching whatever is sensitized, right? 
even at, like, and we can't necessarily always know what is sensitized in terms of a specific tissue. Um, it may not, and it's rarely ever just tissue. We're talking about a pain experience here. So sure, there might be a tissue, there might be some peripheral sensitization, there might be some central nervous system changes, there could be fear and apprehension that we're touching there. Um, all of this is getting into this, right? But if the lobar squat touches it, or if that causes the pain, we know it's touching it, whatever, even if we can't define what it is. So that's one reason. Um, second, we pain is removing your ability to perform the lobar squat. Um, it's taking something from you. I one thing I would, you know, ask, ask everyone who listens to this to think about is. Is there a situation in your life where you feel pain, but don't go to the doctor? You don't try and fix it. You, you just, it's pain. Um, the example I always give is a paper cut. You, you get a paper cut, it hurts. It's never pleasant, but you don't try and do anything about it. You just throw a Band-Aid on and you go on, right? So people don't go to the doctor because they hurt they go because there's a worry about the hurt, right? So if you're apprehensive about the squat or let's say that you're, um, the, the squat's causing you some sort of fear, anxiety, apprehension, you're worried about that. Well, what's the best way to approach that? Well, it's to expose them to the thing that causes them fear. It's the, so the low bar squat, right? Avoid, if they've been avoiding the low bar squat, well, the best way to get them to low bar squat is the low bar squat. <laughs> um, if I also view it as it's the most direct path forward to back to what you want to do. If normal life for you looks like squatting 300 pounds and you can current and we can kind of or we get you squatting, you can squat body weight and that's fine. We put an empty bar on your back, that's fine. We build you all the way up to 150 and like, okay, we're teetering on the edge of your symptoms now. There they are. It's like, okay, do I need to pull you all the way back to isometrics and wall sits and all this other stuff? It's like, no, like the most direct pathway would be to start you at 150 and move you up to 300 with some gradual progressive overload with good criteria as to when we make those next jumps. So it's kind of the, it's the direct pathway. Um, we can say that um, disability, so your ability, how much struggle you feel you're having with your own daily life. Disability has more correlation with the change in activity levels than it does your absolute activity levels. So how do we minimize the change? Have them do the thing they want to be able to do. <laughs> There's so many reasons why the answer it is the best rehab is to do the thing that they want to be able to do, but that they're struggling with. And I think that's a really smart way to approach it. Uh, back with the movement is medicine type way. But what, how would you say from yourself, obviously I know how you are uh, set aside from me, but where do you know how a, where would you say that fine line is where someone should actually seek out more professional help? Uh, 
obviously pain is manageable. I, whenever I have any pain, I take the approach you're talking about, like, okay, if bench is bothering me, what are the muscles that are there? And then isolate it. What, what's bothering me? How heavy can I go before it starts to bother me? But where's that fine line cross where you think someone should actually reach out to you? Um, well, when you feel like you can't manage it on your own, okay. one. That'd be like, that's definitely one. Um, when it is maybe falling outside of a kind of, if you feel like you're doing the right things, but it's falling outside of what you feel the response should be, maybe you need to seek out an opinion. Um, we should also throw in that, you know, there are sinister things out there, even though they are a low percentage of total cases, right? There are potential red flags and, and, you know, if you're having, you know, night pain and weight loss and, or you've had, you know, uh, you know, you currently had, you had steroid injections recently and stuff like this is like, well, are there signs that this could be, that you could have an infection? Are there signs that there could be cancers or tumors or stuff like that? You know, that's kind of what we're trained as trained for as medical professionals to at least to first rule out. Um, now, if you are developing some knee pain that occurs when you squat and it's only when you squat over a certain weight, probably not cancer. <laughs> right. It's really hard to do because right. That ego's there and we want to, we want to do it for the gram though. That's really oh, sure. <laughs> now, if you have unrelent, now if you have unrelenting pain, that's not getting better. It's with you at all movements, even at re- even pain at rest, Maybe you should, maybe we should seek something out and we should at least take a look at it. Okay. Um, but I mean, I can't sit here and say every single person should always see a doctor for every single pain they feel because I wouldn't do that. Um, and so I, I would kind of say common sense of like, okay, that's, this seems like this is more than a simple thing that's going to go away on its own. Maybe we look for, and we've tried some, you know, uh, we've tried some modifications and we've tried to do what we know how to do. And once you don't know how to do it anymore, seek out some help from somebody who maybe does this day in, day out and, and has seen it a thousand times over. Yeah. Going back to what you were saying with the low bar squad, and I think that's, it does a lot of power because right. You're trying to stay as specific as possible um, for that particular individual. um, But Right. There's plenty of evidence out there that if you literally regress to literally doing nothing, coming back is going to be just as hard, if not harder. Um, so I think, you know, just finding those simple regressions um, to still get some type of squat movement is going to be really beneficial. But a lot of people neglect to look at just load or even modifying tempo or simply just range of motion. Um, I find, you know, for me, my left knee every time basketball season comes and I play in. Uh, with my team, man, it's like, okay, Adam, like now you really have to pay attention to your RPEs and making sure you're not, Hey, no, wasn't an eight, but we'll just say it's an eight. That's something (laughs) really, you really can't do when, you know, things are coming up. And I think that from my experience is just literally going through that experience and, you know, educating throughout the process. Um, So for an, an individual that has never been there, I think that's really tough and that's really scary. And I think, again, that's where you come into play um, and educated professionals or coaches, like that's where they really kind of do a lot of work um, of not completely shutting it down. Is like, right, let's go ahead and just manage it. Let's pay attention to it. And let's do something rather than completely nothing. Um, and I think that narrative is starting to get out there a lot more. 
But I also, I guess, want to ask you again, too. So I maybe let's just kind of stick with the squat, right? Still, right. Okay, we're still modifying load, but maybe technique isn't there. Are, Are you trying to work with that as in maybe a specific load, right? Knees are, knees are caving in or, Hey, um, I'm tilting forward. I'm rounding a little bit. Are those issues that, or maybe we need to supplement other exercises so that doesn't happen. Are you addressing that as well? So potentially, yeah, this, this is gets into the, I guess, nuance of it all, right. Where we're never, it's very rare that we're prescribing one exercise in isolation. Like everything fits into a larger program. So what are we, I guess we have to kind of ask, well, what's the overall goal of what we feel you need to do? Um, Now, I don't think that we, I think we very rarely need to fix anything um, for pain to settle. Okay. Now we can then say, all right, well, what about maybe it coming back again? What about injuring ourselves again? Um, were there certain things that maybe we, that we could address? And so to kind of start this conversation, we need to even think about, well, how did we get to pain in the first place? How do we, how did that happen? Because I'm going to guess you had the same squat technique the day before you got hurt as the day that you did get hurt. And you didn't hurt on day one, but you got, but you hurt on day two. Now, some would say that you were a ticking time bomb and it was just wear and tear. And that was just a mat. That was just all, it was all a matter of time. I would say your body has adapted to that over time. Okay. If you normally squat with your knees caving in, you've always squatted that way and you've squatted that way for years. Then just because it, it now hurts doesn't necessarily mean that the movement was the cause. Because again, the movement is simply the way the load gets distributed. The load thing is the stimulus which causes adaptation, right? So if you've had load, you've had load on the on those tissues that caved in, let's say the higher patellofemoral joint load for your whole five-year career here, and there was no issue. So can we blame the movement? Mm, I don't think so. Now, we would doing something to pull the knees out and get the knees a little further out, would that maybe give you a higher ceiling of now I can hire, now I can tolerate more training volume, which would allow me more gains with feeling less beat up. Maybe I can't predict that, but if that's something that you and I decide on as a worthy goal, then then sure we can try it. But I can't go into it saying you have to do that. Now, if we have you squat and we see those knees caving in and like, oh, there's pain, right? And we say like, all right, and your load's 150. And then we have you consciously work on driving your knees out. And now you can squat 250. Okay. We because re- we reduce the load that the knee was experiencing via this change in mechanic, right? Now we have a choice. Do we stay as normal as possible in keeping with their natural mechanic and build the load up in their natural mechanic? 
Or do we go to an alter mechanic, which may allow them a higher stimulus for their quads and their glutes and their back and a closer load stimulus to what they're used to that lets them train more tolerably there. Because remember, this person can squat 300, 350 pounds. 150 is 50%. Are we, maybe by keeping their normal mechanic, we're going to detrain them a little bit. By altering the mechanic, maybe we maintain a training stimulus a little better. So that needs to come into it. Maybe we do both. Maybe we have them um, train a cup. Maybe we have them do a top set where they're driving their knees out. But then we do some acclimation, lower down sets where we allow their natural mechanic at a lower load. And then we're focused on doing a little bit of both. Um, that gets into the whole individualization of this whole process. And that's a decision that you and I would make together as what we feel would be best based on your goals. Yeah. And I think, right. Like that, I was smiling the whole time you're talking about, cause that like, that's the art of coaching right there. That's the art of being a practitioner. And like you said, it's a two way street. We have to have that communication with that individual say, Hey, this is what we can do. We can kind of say, say if it, if it works, okay, let's keep rolling. If it doesn't, like you said, there's so many different options and avenues that we can do. Um, I know for me, whenever I get that left, left knee pain, it's a lot of tempo work. Um, and instead of back offs being low bar, um, or instead of back offs being sometimes high bar, I literally go to a, an SSB and play it with a lot of pin squats. For some reason that works, I'm going to keep rolling with it. And sometimes I just have to pay a little bit more attention to my warmups. Um, and that's, I guess, another thing that I would like to ask you, how are you prescribing warmups or if any warmups, are you kind of prescribing to specific lifters or just individuals, let's say that, you know, are, I forgot the word, but that are more like combat individuals, like police officers, armies, medics, things of that nature. Like, are you, what are you doing to prepare them to go outside and do their job? Um, well, I mean, warmups for me, it's like, well, again, what's the goal of the warmup? We're trying to kind of increase core temperature, just get you moving, stuff like that. Essentially prepare you to do what it is that you want to do. So I look at warmups kind of in a tiered system. Um, whereas if you can just do the activity that you plan to do, but do it a little bit lighter and slower to get started, like that's a good warm up. you know, that's fine. If you want to go, if you want to walk in to the gym and you want to hop under a bar and just start squatting with the empty bar for a few sets of 10, whatever, and that, and then gradually ramp up from there, that's a fine warm up. Nothing says you have to go and do you know, 15 minutes of isolated hip drills prior to that. Now, um, so whatever, you know, whatever your training looks like, that could be your warm up. And I kind of call that my tier one. Um, I think that's a, like, that's where I'd like to get most people to, honestly. Uh, that's where, I, that's what I do more often than not. Some days you're going to walk in and you're just feeling like your body can't get moving though. Right. Like it, it, you've, then you're feeling a little beat up. You're deeper into prep or something. Um, you haven't been sleeping as well. You're overreached a little bit. It's like, okay, I don't really want to just hop under the bar. Cause I feel so stiff. That's just uncomfortable. And I feel like I just can't, no matter how many reps I do, it's not going to get better. So you go and you're like, all right, well, I'm going to do two of these drills over here that really seem to help me. And that helps me feel like I'm kind of like moving a bit better. And then I'm going to go jump into my tier one stuff. 
Um, I kind of do that with my hip every now and again. I get this like left-sided uh, um, or right-sided anterior hip pain that is odd. It only, come, it only comes on whenever I come up from the squat, not even in the bottom of it. But what I have found is that like doing some banded uh, standing psoas marches, just hitting like 20, 30 of those and feeling a nice little burn in the front side of my hip pretty much lets me jump right into my squats then with no hip pain. And I'll do that. And for me, I, it like the time investment to like scale out of the squat and stay out of all this stuff. Like that's, I don't, it doesn't bother me enough to care. I'm like, I'm going to do my psoas marches and that's fine. <laughs> um, so that'd be, that's kind of an example of what I call a tier two. Do a couple little things to help you feel like you're getting moving. Um, and then some, you have those, some people that are like, maybe they just need a 15 minute routine, you know? And they're like, I, sh I feel like I, got, I feel like I need to do something kind of low intensity, build my way into it, into, into actually like getting my work done for the day. It's kind of like a tier three and you kind of go through a, whatever, like unloaded drills and just kind of like dynamic stretching or something that would work. And that'd be, that'd be fine too. Um, if you kind of translate that over to like a team sport setting, then, you know, obviously you have the demand of the sport. So let's take basketball, for example, if um, we have our layup drills, right. And we have our shoot around, all that stuff is stuff you're going to be doing in the game. That's how we, that would be how you warm up. Now you're also going to be doing some sprinting and change of direction work. So if you wanted to, you could also, you know, do a quick jog around, jog around the gym and do a couple lines, you know, run a couple lines and some pivot drills and stuff like that. That'd be a good warm up. Now, if you also wanted to do some bodyweight squats and some lunges and stuff that falls a little more into like drills, you're not necessarily going to be doing that during the game. No one's going to be busting out 10 air squats in the middle of an NBA game. Right. Um, but it might make your knees feel like they're warmed up a bit better to go and do a lot of the jumping work and stuff like that. So that could be fine too. Um, and some people, you know, want to bust out their bands and and do their stretches and all that stuff. Um, you just kind of regress back as far as you feel like you need to, but realizing that again, the movements you're trying to prepare yourself for the movements that are going to potentially throw load onto your body. So you could start by doing those movements, but with less load and then scale the load up and it essentially get you to the same spot. Yeah, it's funny that you brought up the basketball situation because with my I've coached middle school basketball at my old chat or my old middle school about four years now. And every single year the kids ask me, coach, why don't we stretch before? I'm like, what's that going to do? Like, just go ahead. Let's get into our five star drill and you're moving. You're doing things that are going to get you ready for when we do like live stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but I always love hearing individuals like perception of a warm up because when I work out at a powerlifting gym, all these powerlifters, they have the lacrosse ball, they have their bands, they have the booty built. They have like the whole bag is pretty much stuff to prime them to warm up. I'm like, I'm watching. I was like, yo, I just worked up to my top set. I'm on my second set of back ops and you're still warming up. Like, I feel like there's an other issue there if it's taking you that long to warm up. Um, well, I think there's a, I mean, I think that comes down to like what the narrative behind why you're doing it. So like, what are you doing that warm up for? So if you are seeing it as, hey, I'm trying to just literally go through some movement, get my body moving and 
so that I can do this thing over here. It's that's prep. And if you view it as like my, I have to make sure my glutes are active enough in order to go and do the squat or else my squat's not going to work correctly or something like you, again, you're throwing this kind of like mystical effect of the exercise itself out there. Like, Oh, this exercise does something special. No, no exercise is special. How you apply the exercise does something right. It provides some sort of adaptation to you, but so many narratives get thrown around about like, Oh, well, this exercise is activating this, loosening this. And if you don't do it, then you're not going to move correctly. And therefore you will get injured or you're going to get hurt. It's like, I don't know. You can say that. Right. Um, yeah, I totally agree with that. And I, I think that's another, a lot of people's reliance on the foam roller, like a lot of oh, yeah. evidence supporting now that it, it takes tons, like maybe two cars to actually move. And <laughs> yeah, it's like, yeah, it's like 2000 pounds. Um, so like you just simply rolling back and forth on that, that foam roller for 10, 15 minutes, isn't it going to do much? It might feel good. Like I'll do okay. it every once in a while. Hey, I'm feeling stiff. Let me roll on it for 30 seconds and hear my thing pop every once in a while. Now I feel good to go ahead and squat. Absolutely. But again, I like think the narrative to why you're doing these is so much more important. Right. And so as you start to think about like the client, right, you think about who are you working with? Now, if you're a, if you're a power lifter and you have three hours to train, right. And you have an, and you can dedicate half an hour of that to a warm up, And that's something that you value. And you feel like that improves your performance. Hey man, go do it. I don't care. You got the time. It's not taking away from your training. But, you know, if you have a personal training client that you have 30 minutes with them, then, you know, should you be spending 15 of that in the warmup? I don't know that you should. Um, now, to put that, I mean, to, I, that's where I take the approach is, hey, it's my job to educate them. Okay. Before you come see me, just simply just walking, increasing, like you said, your, your body temperature yeah. is simply enough. Then we get more specific with our movements that we're going to address. But right. I have a, I have a, and I'm sure we all do right now, have a real big issue when it's like you have to do this or you're going to get hurt or yeah, that that's bulletproof yeah. your back like that. We can't predict anything. Exactly. <laughs> we suck at that. One thing that I always come across when it comes across this narrative situation is, uh, you've mentioned it, Dr. Harden, about the progression progression with the exercises and a lot of the things is if someone's never done a back squat, then they can't go straight into a back squat. And that's something that really irks me because you brought up in a personal training atmosphere, how, okay, if a personal trainer has 30 minutes with a client, they're spending 15 minutes just to warm up the client, then it's sort of irrelevant. And I've had people question me like, Chris, why are you just putting them in a back squat and increasing the load on the first day? I'm like, well, they sit on a chair all the time. They do plenty of squats. Like, let's get some weight added, get to their goals. Um, and it's just very surprising on what the narrative could be. Yeah. And so, you know, you could think about it maybe from a skill acquisition standpoint. You know, maybe you're fine. Maybe like you have this client and there are some things that you are trying to improve upon for them from a skill standpoint. And you know that this is somebody who has never squatted before. They are brand new to this. And so they're trying to get that motor coordination down. They're kind of Bambi legs at the moment. Now we can say probably the best way for them to learn 
that is to get exposed to the movement in question, right? And just stay away from failure. Like, let's just put them at something that's manageable, but also challenging, right? But that they can do. If it's too easy, they're not going to learn anything. If it's too hard, they're just going to fail. And so we have to find that kind of sweet middle ground. But you might find that if um, maybe having them do some goblet squats prior to going into their, you know, barbell squats, kind of like kind of grooves that pattern, gets the, because it's a bit of an easier movement than the barbell is. So they kind of go through a set or two with that. And now they kind of just like, oh yeah, it's, it, it kind of like relearn that a minute because it isn't second nature to them the way it is for us because we've been doing it for years. Nothing wrong with that. Absolutely nothing wrong with that. If you're having them go and do, you know, band sidesteps because they, you know, you're like, oh, you've been sitting all day. So your glutes are asleep because you've had them under compression all day. And so that's going to decrease their force output. Like, come on now, you're speaking bullshit now. Like, <laughs> let's that's not why you're that's not doing that come on um simply just it, doing squat will wake your glutes up yeah right or now it, it may be uh, you know maybe it just may, makes them feel their glutes more and that gives them confidence okay useful that's useful throw that in i would still probably have them do a set of empty bar back squats and then just throw the band on and do side steps in between to save time it doesn't mean you can't do the drill and, you know, that's another thing about maybe warmups is some people view it as like a, it's a spot to put in movement that maybe you just wouldn't get somewhere else, exploring different movements you wouldn't get somewhere else. And that could be a useful, useful thing. Like there might be a, um, let's say you have like piss poor shoulder mobility or something like, so, you know, and you want to improve on that, but you really don't want to like regress yourself back to a, another movement that is going to like um, force you into a, that position. Like I really want to do my heavy overhead presses, um, you know, and I'm going to arch when I do that. And that like nothing wrong with that, but you also want to improve that kind of shoulder flexion. Well, you know, maybe the warm up is a good spot for you to like knock out a couple sets of exposure in that, low you know in that position that's going to force you into like it's going to not going to let you hide from it right and so oh and like you can do both you can have both and that's that's you know maybe a um a useful spot to throw some stuff in yeah and that's actually a lot that i saw uh working at another facility is they use their warm-up mainly to get the heart rate up, but they would set the movements. It was a group training atmosphere and they would set the movements 15, 20 yards apart. And it would be like, like can openers or something like that with a band. And then they'd have them sprint over to the next little group setup. And that's where I got that warm up introduction. I was like, wow, this is like, no one wants to do a face pull with their like military press because it's like a face pull. Like, why would we do that when we're starting our compound movements? But if you throw it in your warm up, it's a very good way, like you said, to get those movements that you normally wouldn't do or want to take a ton of time out or take other exercises away to get you moving and do the exact same thing. Yeah. So it does act as exposure. Yeah. Now we then we do need to remember though that you know if you're putting it in a warm up. 
you're probably not training it hard enough to get a ton of like strength, power, et cetera, adaptation out of it. Because otherwise it's going to generate fatigue and that kind of defeats the purpose of the warm up in the first place. So it is exposure, but it's probably not enough exposure to say like, oh yeah, I'm training this. And so, you know, some people are like, oh, I have to do my band pull aparts because like to like strengthen my rhomboids. It's like, are you really training that hard enough to strengthen your rhomboids more than your seal rows? Really? You know, more than your barbell rows, more than your dumbbell rows? I don't think so. <laughs> and I think that's part of actually kind of where the activation standpoint started to like, maybe some of that narrative comes in because you typically do them for really high reps. And you, so you feel kind of, you know, that burn that comes with high rep training. Yeah, so um, and people are like, oh, it must be active now. Yeah, that's where I have, I guess I'll throw some smoke, but I'm not going to name the, name drop anyone. But when you're doing frog pumps or single leg hip thrusts, and you're saying like, that's really going to build my glutes and you're not doing, you know, heavy compound movements, there's a big issue with that. Um, again, it maybe it's, you know, those accessory movements that you go ahead and do, but when you're going to tell that narrative, you have to hip thrust, you have to do single hip, hip thrust, you have to do glute kickbacks just to develop your glutes. Like you can do that and probably progressive overload and get stronger as a whole individual, more tolerant um, with barbell squatting, with deadlifting and doing all those rather than, you know, pre-fatiguing and then going into and then increasing your risk of injury. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. I feel yes. personally attacked, Adam. I feel like because I start all my workouts that people want to target their butt. I started with frog pumps. So I feel very targeted. Your personal workouts, frog pumps. Yes. You just like to do that motion. Yeah. Personally, I yeah. feel it. I feel it more. So I think it, it's activating the butt more. So it should make it grow more. So. Yeah. It's you know, so when you look, I think there's a, um, the, uh, coming back to kind of some of the, we were talking about, you know, some of the maybe bad things that come with social media um good and bad one of the things that we see a lot on maybe social media around training especially is the conversations tend to center around optimization and how to get the absolute as close to 100% gains as possible right like how do we take that next step how do we tweak the next thing and i i i'm in these conversations and i've been around these conversations a lot so it's like for me the one that always comes to mind is like the volume conversation. How much volume, how many sets per week should we be doing? Should we be progressing our RPE week to week or should we be holding it static? You know, should we be adding sets week to week or should we be holding them static? And we need to remember that like, we are literally talking about how to go from maybe like 95% of our gains to 97% of our gains. And that the thing that got us to 95 in the first place was some, showing up every day, working hard and doing that consistently for years on end, you know, and then we're, the more things you start to layer on, they can add up. Like they, they can add up to something significant that you might notice, but it is, we're talking optimizing. We're not talking effective. And so again, who are you talking about? Does your client care about optimizing or do they care about effective? I mean, we live in a country here where like 25% of people meet our minimum activity, physical activity guidelines. So most people probably don't need optimization and like this, like we need to target, you know, 
every corner of your butt here, you know, to and shape it appropriately. Like most people probably can just do some squats and some hip thrusts and some deadlifts, some lunges, and to like be well on their way to exactly what they want. Yeah, that, that volume discussion is is really debated. I'm involved with uh, Dr. Buckner's lab, Samuel Buckner, if you're familiar okay. with him. Um, and there was a, I, it's not an actual published peer-reviewed paper, but there was one individual that put out a paper and blasted some individuals on there. And it was pretty crazy. I could send it to you if you like. It's a, oh, yeah, that'd be fun. Well, well, it's a very well-written read, um, but you would never go there almost scientifically. But it was a really good read about all, you know, the sets and the volume and all of that type of literature mm-hmm. kind of exposing uh, stuff that you don't see. Um, if you're just, I guess, general population from the scientific uh, realm. So it was a really good read and kind of opened my eyes of how to maybe view or analyze certain um, articles from now on. Hmm. Yeah, that'd be a fun read. Yeah, my my thought on that is um, your, the volume, the maximum volume you can tolerate isn't a fixed point on any given day in the first place. Mm -hmm due to variables outside of training i would agree how you slept last night what your nutrition has been like yada 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 and so i almost feel like by changing more variables you're adding more noise to the system rather than saying all right i'm gonna hold this thing steady coupled with my average life and then if i don't change anything about my life i can then at least change this variable and maybe move up or down but that's how i think about it yeah but again i'm at a point in my life where i don't care as much about going from 95 percent to 97 percent. but that's just where i'm at other people like want to step on stage and they want to get everything and like that's why those are good conversations to have they move us forward they really do we need to keep having those conversations but we don't want to lose sight of why we're having those conversations, which is we have all of our big rocks in place already. And for maybe somebody who is um, new to the whole exercise thing and they step into kind of this world and that's all they see. And they're like, oh my gosh, like this is overwhelming. All these things I have to think about. It's like, no, 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 wait a minute. Mm-hmm. You go over here, like show up, work hard, be consistent, do that for five years and then come over here and have, and, and we'll talk. Exactly. Yeah. I think that's where a lot of people lose sight of is like, Hey, just grind away 80% of the time man. just show up and you will get to where you want to be. But I think that's the hardest part is being consistent, being patient, particularly, and just grinding in day in and day out. And then eventually yeah. it goes with anything. It goes with anything. If you want to yeah. learn a new language, it's not going to pick up in a week. Or if you want to start a new business, write a new book, it doesn't happen in a day or a week. It takes months, years, it's just again, patience, consistency, that's where, that's where it all, that's where the magic unfolds. Right. So, yeah. So I think we'll go ahead, wrap this up. Thank you so much, Dr. Hardin. And uh, thank you for giving some insight with how OSR operates and where you would hopefully like the Cairo field to go. Where can our, I'll say two listeners find you. Well, um, even though I haven't been posting on Instagram, I still am on there every day. And I, I so hit me up in my DMs if um, it's at dr.jacob.harden. That's the easiest spot to find me. Um, and I'm more than happy to always discuss anything, any questions, any differing viewpoints anyone has. Like, keep the conversation going. 
Um, you can also, I'm on every social media platform, social media by my name, um, and you'll reach me. Awesome. Thank you. And that was all the smoke with Dr. Harden. You guys have a wonderful